Mark 10 and verse 1. It says, Then he arose, Jesus, from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. And multitudes gathered to him again, and as he was accustomed, he taught them again. The Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Testing him. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. In the house, his disciples also, also asked him again about the same matter. So he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So Jesus comes back, he departs from Capernaum, and he comes back for the last time and heads into the southern region, into the region of Judea. Uh, we know from other accounts that he passed through Samaria, but they did not receive him. His face was set like a flint to go to Jerusalem. He doesn't go directly to Jerusalem, but he goes to the area on the eastern side of the Jordan. And we see here that from God's perspective, not only is the so-called West Bank in reality Judea and Samaria, but Judea, Israeli land proper, extends to the regions east of the Jordan. The land belongs to the Lord, and he gives it to whom he will. And all who oppose his gift will be opposed by him, and they'll be subject to his dealings. Now, back in Joel chapter 3, the Lord points this out, that in place he points this out, that this is his land. He gives it to whom he wants. Uh, Joel 3, 1 says, For behold, in those days and at that time when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And so this is off in the future still. And I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. On account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, they have also divided up my land. This is the era when they have divided up that land. It's always been a unity, whoever conquered it, you know. But so we know, you know, we see the Valley of Jehoshaphat. We see he's uh, talking about dividing up his land, which is would indicate also that this is our time today. In Leviticus 25:23, the Lord commanded them and said, The land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. You are strangers and sojourners with me. God allowed them to occupy the land. He's, he gave the land to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the descendants, but uh, it was always his land, and they occupied the land if they kept the covenant of the Lord. If they didn't keep the covenant, then they weren't allowed to occupy the land. In Second Chronicles chapter 7, 
The Lord talks to them about this in verse 19. It says, If you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot them from my land, which I have given them. And this house, which I have sanctified for my name, I will cast out of my sight. We'll make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. We've seen the fulfillment of that in history. And as for this house, which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and this house? And then they will answer because they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt and embraced other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this calamity on them. And then in Ezekiel chapter 36, he's really, this is the chapters where he talks about uh, bringing them back. And he's, he talks to those dry bones uh, later on. But here in, in Ezekiel 36, verses 1 through 5, Ezekiel prophesies, he says, You son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel. I mean, you want to be a prophet, you know, that'd be easy prophecy. You just talk to the mountains, you talk to the rocks, you know, whatever. And prophets did this once in a while. God commanded them to speak to different aspects of creation. So prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because the enemy has said of you, Aha, the ancient heights have become our possession. Therefore prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, because they made you desolate and swallowed you up on every side, so that you became the possession of the rest of the nations, and you were taken up by the lips of talkers and slandered by the people, speaking to Israel about the way they've been treated by others. Therefore, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, the hills, the rivers, the valleys, the desolate wastes, and the cities that have been forsaken which became plunder and mockery to the rest of the nations all around. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Surely I have spoken in my burning jealousy against the rest of the nations and against all Edom who gave my land to themselves as a possession with wholehearted joy and spiteful minds in order to plunder its open country. This is God's land and they've, take, they've taken it for themselves as a possession, but he'll work it all out. So the word gets out. Jesus is back in the south. And the multitudes hear about it and they gather. And he begins to teach him. And so the Pharisees also show up and they have new strategies for opposing him. They seek to pin him on the horns of a dilemma so that whatever answer he gives, they might accuse him. Will he speak against Moses and what he said? Or against popular opinion, which was different than what Moses said in this instance? We'll see them coming at times over the next week or so with questions by which they seek to trap him in his answers. Yet each time they're thwarted in their purpose. Uh, over the next week or so, that's the biblical week that we're getting into, not our week here. It's difficult to trip up, trip up God. Jesus always has a fitting answer and his words challenge those who challenge him. Sometimes we may question God, but we need to know that he has the ultimate answers to our questions. So we walk by faith, not by sight. We trust him even above our lying eyes. Not really our eyes, but our perception of what our eyes see. 
We walk in dependence, not in having all our questions answered. Let him be our answer, for he truly is. Look to him and live. He desires to bless you. He's given us everything that we need for life and godliness, that is, for following him in all things. That's 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4, which we've read many times. But all of our questions aren't answered now. There are many things that we simply would not be able to comprehend now. It would be like explaining nuclear physics to, well, to me. We know we can't explain some things to our children, but as they grow, they're able to comprehend more, to have greater understanding. Uh, to paraphrase Chuck Smith, couldn't find the exact quote this time, he said something along the lines of, don't give up what you know because of things that you don't know. Depend upon the things the Lord has said that you know for sure, even though there may be other things you think, oh, I don't understand what's going on here. Don't abandon what you know to be true because God says so. That is true. And don't give that up because there are some things you don't understand. So the Pharisees' question was a pressing one of the day and perhaps of every day. Is it lawful that is allowed under the law of Moses for a man to divorce his wife? Is divorce a good thing? Over in Matthew's account of this, in verse 3, it says, The Pharisees came to him, testing him, saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And this was the burning question of the day. They seek to trip him up because there were two rabbinical schools, Hillel and Shammai, to which most people ascribed uh, either to one or the other. And on the matter of divorce, Hillel was the more liberal and popular and Shammai the more strict and unpopular. Hillel taught that a husband could divorce his wife for nearly any transgression or uncleanness that he found in her. This was the standard back in Deuteronomy 24 where Moses spoke. He said, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. And when she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, he'll talk, go on in, in this passage. He talks about if, she, if he puts her out, the second guy, then you can't take her back. So there's this certificate. Moses said, give her a certificate of divorce and send her away. The debate was over the word uncleanness. What constitutes uncleanness? He found some uncleanness in here. And, and so they would argue over this. Seven pages in the Talmud and the Mishnah are devoted to what does this word mean. Pillel says the uncleanness could be as trivial, trivial as burning the meal or even burning the gravy for the meal. It's been likened to burning his toast in our day. Also, if she went out without her head covered, which was a sign of disrespect, as if she were available. If she talked bad about your mother or father, bad-mouthed her in-laws. If she was argumentative. Or even if you found someone prettier. This is an extremely light view of marriage and the seriousness of the marriage vows. This also put wives in a very precarious position. They could be cast out at any time for almost any excuse. Not really a reason, an excuse that a man could, could put her out. And women didn't have these rights, and, and they didn't have a, a good system of support. They couldn't go out on their own and find a job 
take care of themselves. They'd have to do other things. Some rabbis went so far as to say, if a man has a bad wife, it is a religious duty to divorce her. Well, Shammai taught that the uncleanness could only be of a grave transgression, that is, unfaithfulness, and was only valid if you found out that the spouse had been promiscuous before the marriage. This brings to mind the situation of Joseph and Mary. Mary becoming pregnant while they were still betrothed. The thought was, in Shammai's reasoning, that if this was an adulterous situation after marriage, then you didn't need a divorce. The law said stoning was a penalty. So you didn't have to have a lawyer. You didn't have to divorce anybody. You just, you know, get some witnesses, go out. <laughs> it makes divorce superfluous. Many wedding ceremony vows include until death do us part. This reflects God's view of marriage as Jesus states it here in our passage. He's the creator of man and woman and of the marriage relationship. He should know what it means. We see that Jesus' answer in our passage puts him closer to the camp of Shammai or even stricter if this were the only account we have, but it's not. Uh, it's the account in Matthew, Jesus says something a little bit different that makes it different. Jesus is in the camp of the Lord God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and he shares a nature with him. And he's the only one who can give us the straight dope on the subject. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus does give an exception similar to Shammai, but not merely premarital. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, the actual passage is in Matthew 19, which is the parallel passage to this. But in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Furthermore, it's been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. This is an exception we find in Matthew that you know is not given to us in Mark. And this is similar to the passage in uh, Matthew 19. He says the same thing, except sexual immorality, unfaithfulness within marriage is grounds for a legitimate divorce and remarriage, according to what Jesus says here. Um, when he tells them this, even in Matthew, with that exception, his disciples say to him in verse 10 of Matthew 19, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it's better not to marry. If we're going to be locked into this thing, then, you know, better just to stay single. And Jesus says to them, all cannot accept this thing, but only those to whom it has been given. It's a gift to be able to remain unmarried. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. Now Jesus is I don't think uh, recommending self-mutilation as we talked about before when uh, men who have made themselves eunuchs means they've chosen to remain single and they've been given that gift before the Lord. So adultery is a serious sin. It's one of the big ten. Right? No one should encourage divorce or take its consequences lightly. If there are not sufficient grounds, it does result in adultery if a person remarries. 
There is one other situation stated in Scripture for which there are sufficient grounds for remarriage, and that is the abandonment of a believing spouse by one who does not believe. You find this in 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 10. He says, Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. That's what Jesus is saying, right? But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, and, and Paul's not saying this is not from the Lord. He's saying Jesus didn't talk about this. So I, the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she's willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he's willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified, set apart by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. They're set apart also. He says, but if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So this is a grounds where... Um, the believer would be allowed to remarry without there being an adulterous situation. You can read the rest of that passage. There's more about marriage there. Note that this is not speaking of a believer marrying an unbeliever. Believers are not to marry unbelievers. This is speaking of the case of one spouse coming to believe while the other rejects faith in Jesus. Peter speaks of situations, such a situation also in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, where he says, Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. So saying, by your example, they, they see Jesus in you and, and you don't even have to speak. They might be one. So another situation where one spouse has become a believer, the other has not. But if the unbelieving spouse departs or divorces the believer, then the believer is not under bondage. That is, they're free to remarry. So Jesus' answer to them when they say, um, is it okay for a man to divorce his wife? As in verses 3 and 4, he answers, says to them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and dismiss her. Um, he asked about the command that Moses gives. Um, we note here that Jesus affirms that Moses was the author of the Pentateuch. But Moses didn't command them to divorce. divorce. They reply correctly, Moses permitted us to write a writ, a writ of divorcement. So what they're actually saying is Moses said we can do what we want. The men, that is. The women didn't have this uh, option or this opportunity. And Jesus uh, doesn't accept their interpretation of Moses' permission. Instead, he says, because of the hardness of your hearts. He declares that this provision was allowed because they had hard hearts toward their wives. Not all, but the majority. I mean, that's an ouch. Jesus nails them, and perhaps us. In our day, it could be a wife having a hard heart toward her husbands. You know, wives had no such right of divorce in Judaism, but today they do. So God gave this provision, not a command, but an allowance based on the hard hearts of man. God does not want abusive relationships uh, 
nor for such relationships to continue for those who are being abused. If men cannot divorce their wives, much worse actions could occur. Actually, they do occur when men choose not to divorce their wives. He or she may seek to be rid of them by other means. Or the spouse may suffer cruelty at the hands of their beloved. God is not in favor of this. Malachi chapter 2, starting in verse 10, Malachi says, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution which he loves. He has married the daughter he has married the daughter of a foreign god. This is Judah speaking of the nation. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, being awake and aware, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with good will from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? He says, because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. He's talking about that becoming one flesh. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for he covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Dealing treacherously through the hardness of heart, a lack of tenderness, a lack of compassion or care for the spouse. This permission protects the wife from a hard-hearted husband. This ability to write a certificate of divorce. Divorce in this case is not God's desire, but it's the lesser of the two evils which could take place. God's default position is that he hates divorce. Many read this as God hates those who are divorced, whether it's a man or a woman. If we know God, we know that this is not true. One of the speakers at the Midwest Conference this week said, and rightly so, that God is the most misunderstood being in the universe. People ascribe all sorts of evil motives or desires to the Lord, which are far from his character. They are far from the heart of God. And this is tragic. If people just understood the heart's desire of God toward them, their lives would never be the same. From darkness to light, from death to life, from weeping tears of sorrow and pain to weeping tears of joy, even though the times remain tough because God, because of the person and promises of God. God does hate divorce, but that's because he loves those who go through a divorce. He loves divorcees and non-divorcees. He doesn't love those who have not been divorced more than he loves those who have been. The fact that many Christians think so highlights our ability to be proud and self-righteous concerning God's grace to us. He hates divorce because he knows the damage or the pain that it causes to those who are its victims. 
He also knows the consequences that can result from men's hardness of heart, and he allows an escape for the sake of the abused spouse. This is implied by Jesus' reference to hardness of heart. But it need not be physical abuse. Abuse can take many hardness of heart forms. The certificate of divorce was for the wife's protection. It allowed her to remarry and confirm that she was not an adulteress. That wasn't, wasn't the grounds for divorce, or she would have been stoned rather than divorced. You know, the certificate of divorce says she was a bad cook. You know? I don't know if they had to specify. I don't think they did. And there was no lawyer or courts involved. The husband just gives her this certificate and says, bye. You know, that's the way it worked. And I know a number of people who remain brokenhearted about the dissolution of a marriage, even though it has been years ago. One of the reasons Jesus came and God loves is that he might heal the brokenhearted. We discussed this briefly recently. Uh, when Jesus quotes Isaiah 61.1. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. The Lord wants to bind up the brokenhearted. The church is to be His hands and His heart to bring healing and not to cause further pain. That is, we're to be helping bind up the brokenhearted. Instead, many times we pile on in, with judgment and condemnation. Now, there's a, a song, one of the lines is, Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. And that's true in the case of divorce also. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin, especially so in our age of no-fault divorce. Uh, this is a legality, you know, I don't know, the last half decade or more, we've had no-fault divorce, which means you didn't have to have a cause or a reason. You just, you know, if you say incompatibility or whatever. Um, but there's no such thing, really, as no-fault divorce. Um, before no-fault, the only grounds allowed were adultery, cruelty, or desertion under our legal system. The fault or guilt may be with only one or with both spouses to whatever degree, some become divorced against their will. And what, what do we do with our guilt? We repent when guilty and we bring our guilt to God so that we might be forgiven and restored to relationship with Him. Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. If God doesn't condemn then we must not either. There were many strange doctrines that were being taught in the 70s when I became a believer. There always have been, I'm sure. I know there are many strange doctrines taught in every decade, but that decade seemed to spawn more than its share. One strange and unbiblical teaching was that if you had divorced and remarried, even if you had been married multiple times, you were required to divorce your current spouse, break up your current family, and be reunited with your original spouse in order to be right with God. That was the only solution that was possible. And some people attempted to do this. Uh, these people taught that the adultery committed continued as long as a person was remarried. Now, Jesus didn't counsel the woman at the well in any such way. How does Jesus treat the woman at the well? 
It is his encounter with a woman who has been married five times and divorced five times and is currently living with a man without the benefit of marriage, that is, in a sinful relationship. And let there be no doubt, people today, many of them professing Christians who are living together unmarried, are living in a sinful relationship. Assuming God's grace is not the same as receiving God's grace. What kind of pain and sorrow is this woman carrying in her heart? And how does Jesus approach her? He asks for a drink, something not considered appropriate social behavior, nor proper religious behavior of the self-righteous, because the Jews had nothing to do with the Samaritans, and particularly with the Samaritan woman, particularly a Samaritan woman who was an immoral woman like this. Jesus opens a door by which he might meet her need and relieve her pain and set her free from guilt and sin. This is a person who was a social pariah in her village. That's why she was out there at the time she was getting water. Everybody else came out at another time. And you know she had uh, made friends of some of the men and then some enemies of some of the men. And then she made enemies probably of all the women you know, because of the situation. Jesus tells her this, John 4, 13 and 14, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And of course, she wants some of this water, and he, he does give her some. We also see Jesus' compassion and grace for the woman accused of adultery and brought before him. Shall we stone her? Much of the church would probably say yes. The husband would likely vote for stoning, and we can understand that. We understand what's going on in the husband's heart. Adultery or fornication, which is a more wide-ranging word for sexual immorality, breaks the marriage commitment and is grounds for the dissolution of a marriage. Note that it's not... Uh, required, it's not required that a person divorce in that situation. There are people who uh, have chosen to stay with this unfaithful spouse and they work things out and they have a, a very wonderful marriage you know, later on. So it's not a requirement, but it is uh, a legitimate grounds. A person may have guilt from the original adulterous situation or even subsequent sexual sin but it is impossible and unscriptural to try and undo all of the past in order to be in a right relationship with God. We all come to him as we are. Uh, we read Psalm 130, I think last week, verses 3 and 4. It says, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. We come to the Lord for that forgiveness and that cleansing. We begin with God uh, where we are, just as I am. He's promised to forgive and to abundantly pardon. Isaiah 55, 7, he says, Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. He won't just pardon. He will abundantly pardon if people will simply come to him, turn back to him. So we start with God. There And we begin to walk with Him in a restored relationship between us and, and Him. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ, He's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Everything in the past. We start with a clean slate. 
And afterward, we keep a short account with God, lest we give the devil a foothold. First John chapter 1, verses 7-9, through 9, he says, If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Jesus changes the discussion in verse 6 from one of divorce to one of marriage. This is the real topic. You know, we have uh, the uh, captions in your Bibles at the beginning of sections. Probably say Jesus speaks about divorce. He's really bringing them back to God's view of marriage. We can't know anything of the issue of divorce until we know God's thoughts or commands on marriage. Jesus refers back to the original purpose for marriage. If we want to know the original purpose for anything, we need to go back to its origin. He asked them, found in Matthew's account, have you not read? Don't you know what it says in Genesis? He challenges their belief in and interpretation of what the Scriptures say. He speaks of the creation account as true history, note, not myth, not archetype or conjecture, actual space-time history. Some teach that the first two chapters of Genesis are two different and contradictory accounts of creation. Jesus, however, in this passage, quotes from Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24 as perfectly complementary and of absolute authority. Genesis 2 is simply an expansion of the account given in chapter 1. Notice that uh, he says, from the beginning of creation, he made them male and female. Not after billions of years of creation. The Bible teaches a supernatural creation completed in six normal, approximately 24-hour days. And I only say approximately because rotation speed of the earth has probably changed since Eden and all that. So, uh, But normal days, is the, those six days. This is what the Bible teaches despite the interpretative gymnastics that some use to try and reconcile the text with billions of years of time. Jesus is our authority, not the speculations of men about the past. They were not there. The one who was there gives us the true time frame. And I'm not ascribing any evil motives to these people. Some of them may have evil motives, but I'm sure that the majority of them are simply seeking to truly interpret the text, and I think they're making a mistake. I think they're making an error. So he made them male and female. Humankind is binary. There are no in-betweens. The world has gone very mad in its rejection of God's truth. And they accuse the sane of being anti-science. There are some, a very few, mercifully, who tragically suffer from birth defects or deformities that cause physical gender issues. But there is no one who is born into one gender's body but are actually another gender. We must again have compassion on those who are suffering such confusion and pray for them that they might be delivered from such delusion and come to a knowledge of the truth. They would no doubt think that this is a demeaning attitude toward them, what I've just said. They would say, we're not inferior to you. And of course, they're not. That is not what is meant. They are to be afforded the same dignity as any others made in God's image 
But that does not change the truth of God. And we do them a disservice when we compromise God's truth to make them feel better. Coming to a knowledge of the truth does set people free. And there are people you know, who have been mixed up and confused in this who now have been set free by the knowledge of the truth. Uh, many today are causing lasting destruction of their bodies and only realize or will realize much later down the road. May God have mercy upon our world that lives in such denial of his word. So uh, Jesus points out in Matthew's account that it is God who says, uh, for this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his uh, wife and they shall become one flesh. You know, if you read the Genesis account, you might think, oh, well, Adam says this whole thing. But Jesus says, no, he made them male and female. And he said, for this reason. So this is God stating this. Um, Adam said, she's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Then Jesus says, they're no longer two, but one flesh. This is what God says about the marriage relationship. And this does not just apply to believers. It is universal. Now we get this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting verse 13, where Paul writes, Food is for the stomach, the stomach for food, but God will destroy both it and them. Neither one is everlasting. This body. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. So he's speaking to Christians who are living in this very immoral and promiscuous culture. He says, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. So this physical joining in relationship produces a one flesh result. He says in verse 17, He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? So, that they become one flesh with someone does not mean that they are married. It is an unauthorized joining together as one flesh. It is a sin. Any joining together outside of marriage relationship is sin. Marriage is what brings God's authorization to the relationship. Now, when he talks about being joined to his wife back in Genesis, the Hebrew word for join or, you know, the King James says cleave. You know, we have cleavers that separate now, you know, so the meaning of the word changed a little bit. <laughs> Cleaving was to be stuck to. And this is what the word meant. To cling, stick, stay close, cleave, keep close, stick to, stick with, follow closely or join to. All those sticky words in there are are very significant. Because the Greek word, once we come to the New Testament, the Greek word means to glue upon, to glue to. So Jesus is saying uh, he'll leave his father and mother and be glued to his wife. To join oneself too closely, cleave to, stick to. Our uh, founding pastor, Mike Miller, used to use the illustration of gluing two pieces of paper together. You take the two pieces of paper and you glue them together, get you some Elmer's and slap it on there. 
then try to take it apart without damaging either piece of paper. It's impossible for the damage not to come. You know, the Lord can heal damages, but it's impossible for the damage not to not to result. So that's the joining together. The two shall become one flesh. Jesus says they are one flesh. And an outcome of this is that children produced in the marriage are a physical manifestation of them being one flesh. You know, he has his father's chin or his mother's eyes, etc. You see a physical result from, from them being one flesh. But a couple need not have children to become one flesh. It's by the joining together in that marriage relationship or in a physical relationship that they become one flesh. They still become one flesh apart from any idea of reproduction. So God does the joining. He's made man and woman that way. This relationship joins them together and Jesus says man must not separate what God has joined. Another reason God hates divorce is the fact that He likens His relationship with Israel and Jesus' relationship with the church to a marriage relationship. This relationship is eternal and cannot be broken. Thus, Christian marriage is a type showing forth the relationship between Christ and His bride, the church. We read this in Ephesians 5. In verse 22, Paul begins giving instructions to different people in the church, different roles. And he says in verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be be to their own husbands in everything. And then he says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. If they become one flesh, then indeed. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body and flesh, of his, uh, I'm sorry, we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father, quoting what we're reading here, and mother, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. This whole, you know, when God instituted marriage, he had in mind already Christ and the church, desiring also his relationship with Israel. And, you know, he says, nevertheless, your wives respect your husband, your husbands love your wives. But this is what it's all about. This great mystery, Christ and the church. And so, you can't dissolve the relationship between Christ and the church. It's an eternal relationship. So, you shouldn't put, take apart what God has joined together. And then his disciples ask him, and he summarizes in verses 11 and 12, whoever divorces his wife marries another, commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Generally, among the Israelites, the woman didn't have any right of divorce, but within the surrounding culture, uh, as they took part in that, 
you perhaps did. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you give us instruction as to what we should and shouldn't do. And thank you, Lord, that if we discover that we're, we have done or are doing something that um, we shouldn't be, that we can come to you. We can confess to you that we can be cleansed and forgiven. Thank you that you make us new creatures in Christ Jesus, Lord, and that there is no condemnation in Christ. We desire, Lord, to walk after the Spirit, not after the flesh. We pray that that might be our uh, goal, our reaching forth to, our pressing on to, Lord, to be more pleasing to You in all that we think, do, and say. And we pray that You would um, minister to any who are still suffering pain from a broken relationship. You would give them your peace, Lord. You would comfort them with your love and your acceptance. And uh, we pray for those also that we discussed who are so confused and are, are not are not aware of your love for them and the fact that you have made them in your image. We pray that more people might be aware of your thoughts toward them, Lord, and not the deceptions of the enemy, so that they might know you, they might come to you, they might have peace in you, experiencing your love, your joy, and for eternity, your presence. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.